Section four of the Lion's Brood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Lion's Brood by Duffield Osborne. Section four. Fabius. Sergius rode back to his men, deeply wounded in love and pride. He tried to excuse Marcia for her treatment of him on the score of her youth and of youth's thoughtlessness. He blamed himself for his abruptness and his lack of knowledge of women, failings that had perhaps turned an impending victory into the defeat that now oppressed him. Worst of all, there was no hope to remedy his or her fault. A dangerous campaign lay before him, and the omens, but he was not one of the rabble to tremble at a flight of birds from the west or an ox with a bad liver he had always admired the spirit of that old sceptic claudius who had drowned the chickens of drepana though he admitted the faulty judgment in failing to realize the effect of such defiance upon ignorant seamen and marines the hierarchy was necessary for the state if only to keep fools in order but for a man of family and education well he smiled it provoked him amid all his disbelief that he could not help preferring that those same omens had been more favourable pride pride was his last and truest safeguard he a descendant of the companion of aeneas to fear the carthaginian sword he a roman noble about to face death for his country to waste his thoughts upon a silly girl who chose to flout him then the long clarions of the cavalry rang out and the horsemen ran to their steeds down the slope of the viminal rode the dictator before him went the twenty-four axes each in its bundle of staves their bearers robed in military cloaks of purple cloth behind came a small troop of illustrious romans his legati his staff nominated by him and sanctioned by the state for their fame and skill in war also such senators as had elected by way of personal compliment to ride with the general and to partake as volunteers in whatever share of the war he might set for them quintus fabius maximus seemed a man just passing the prime of life his figure as he sat his horse was squat rather than tall though his appearance might be due in a measure to the great breadth of his shoulders altogether his frame seemed one better adapted to feats of strength and endurance than for those of agility the face with its grizzled hair and beard both cut short suited well the figure that bore it dignity firmness and kindliness were in his strong and rugged outlines with less perhaps of the pride of race and rank that might have been looked for in the head of the great family whose name he bore he who was now twice dictator of the destinies of rome for dress his purple cloak similar to those of his lictors hung loosely from his shoulders to below his knees and opening in front disclosed a corselet of leather overlaid with metal across chest and abdomen and embossed with bronze designs of ancient pattern and workmanship the hem of the white tunic showed below the leathern pendants that hung a foot down from his girdle the greaves were ornamented at the knees with lions heads an armour-bearer 
carried his master's bronze helmet with its crest of divergent red plumes. Such was the man upon whom Rome now depended for her saving, for victory, dreamed such of the unthinking as had recovered from their terror. For time, 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 reasoned the man with the deep-set grey eyes upon whom they had pinned their faith. Hardly a stride behind him rode Marcus Minucius Rufus, tall and well-built, with bold, coarse features and fierce roving eyes. His red hair bristled from his brow, and he seemed to restrain with difficulty either his steed or himself from darting forward into the lead. "'Yonder is the sword of the Republic,' said one of Sergius's men, as the master of the horse rode by the escort. But the man to whom he said it, an old soldier of the Spanish wars, only shrugged his shoulders. A moment later he grunted in reply, "'Like enough, but it is a shield that the Republic needs most of all.' Then the clarion summoned them to fall in behind the dictator's company, and the troop rode out from the gate, out into the broad plain, away from the protecting walls fluctuant with waving stoles, and from which tear-dimmed eyes strove to follow them among the villas, farms, and orchards of the countryside, away from the forum, from the sacred fig-tree and the black stone of Romulus, away from the divine triad that kept guard over the capital. Beyond lay the Alban mountains, and beyond these, no one knew where, the strange dangers that awaited them. Fierce Spaniards with slender blades as red as the crimson borders of their white coats, wild Numidian riders that always fell upon the rear of Rome's battle, serried phalanges of Africans, veterans of fifty wars, naked Gauls with swords that lopped off a limb at every stroke, Balearic slingers whose bullets spattered one's brains over the ground, Cretans whose arrows could dent an ace at a hundred yards, and above all, over all, the great mind, the unswerving, unrelenting purpose that had blended all these elements into one terrible engine of destruction to move and smite and burn and ravage at the touch of a man's will. The cavalry rode two and two, thinking of such things, picked men, equipped in the new Greek fashion with breastplate, stout buckler, and strong spear pointed at both ends. What thoughts held the mind of the general none could fathom. With head slightly inclined he seemed to study, now the ribbons woven in the horse's mane, now the small sensitive ears that pricked backward and forward, as the Tibertine way flowed sluggishly beneath. As for Minucius, he alone seemed hopeful and unimpressed by the dangers that menaced. He glided here and there, reining his horse beside him, this senator or that lieutenant, to utter a word of the safety assured to Rome and of the ruin that hung over the invader, or even calling back to the foremost of the escort some rough badinage upon their gloomy looks. For Minucius was a man of the people, scorning patrician pride of race, and wishing it known that, however high his rank, he held himself no whit better than any potter of the Aventine or weaver of the Sibura. So riding, thinking, talking, they reached Tiber, where the new levies lay encamped. Thence began the march of the army, a long, weary march to strike the line of the Carthaginian devastators, and, as it rolled onward, the stream of war gathered volume. 
At Daunia they were joined by the legions of Servilius that had marched down from Ariminum, and, at every point, contingents of the allies poured in, until even the most timid began to believe it impossible that disaster could befall, and grew first confident, then defiant, then boastful. To the mind of the dictator himself, however, came no such change. He alone knew the danger, he alone knew the value of the force with which he must meet it. Soldiers in whose minds, despite all their present spirit, lingered the tradition of defeat. Raw levies, not yet truly confident of their officers or themselves, however much the sight of their numbers and their brave show might blind them to the fact that there was another side to the war. And now rumours began to reach them of the enemy. He was at Praetusia, at Hadriana, at Marusina, at Frentana. He had set out toward Iapigia, he had reached Luceria, and everywhere the country was a garden before him and a desert behind. Only one gleam of light shone through the darkness. The Apulians submitted to ravage, but they refused to save their lands by joining fortunes with the invaders. At last came the day of trial. The enemy was at hand. Scouts poured in with news of foraging parties, of masses of troops on the march, and at Aisai the dictator ordered the camp to be pitched and fortified in the order that Roman discipline prescribed, with rampart and ditch and stakes, a city in embryo. Now it was that the boasters must stand by their boasts. Scarcely had the morning broke when the distant mist of the plain seemed to sparkle with myriads of glittering points, seemed to thicken and become dense with clouds of dust. Mingled noises came to the ears of the waking legions, the neighing of horses, the inarticulate murmur of a multitude, the dull rumble of marching men, the ring of arms and accoutrements. Then came the order from the Praetorium, not to advance the standards, but to man the rampart and to repel. Such was not the custom of Rome, to refuse battle amid the ravaged lands of her allies. Had the heart of the dictator grown cold? Forthwith the pale cheeks of the boasters flushed again, lips that had been compressed before the terrors they had so rashly invoked, parted in wonder and complaint. The mist rose, and the sun pierced through the settling dust. There stood the enemy, drawn up in order of battle across the plain, and waiting, too far away for the Romans to make out their form or equipment, just a long, dense array that seemed dark or light in spots. Now and again a trumpet rang out its distant note of defiance. Now and again some portion of the line seemed to manoeuvre or change front, as if to tempt attack, while from time to time a flurry of horsemen, dark-skinned riders bending low upon the necks of wiry little steeds and urging them with shrill, barbarous cries, swept almost up to the ditch and brandished their darts, making obscene gestures and shouting words that brought the blood to the faces of the garrison, though they understood not the tongue that uttered them. A circle of officers surrounded the dictator's tent. Some were silent and shamefaced, some were vociferous of their desire to be allowed to go forth and fight, or, at least, to lead out the cavalry to chastise the insolence of slaves and barbarians. All were wondering and dissatisfied. Few, however, ventured to express their full thoughts. There was a something in the very mildness of their general 
that discouraged too direct criticism. Only Minucius, presuming, perhaps on his position of second in command, perhaps on his contempt for the great houses, sought the dictator's presence and spoke as if half to him, half to the company of officers. Even his first words but thinly veiled his feelings. "'The enemy await us in line of battle, my master, but I do not see the red flag above your tent. Is it your will that the standards be advanced?' "'No, Marcus, it is not my will, or the signal would have been displayed,' said Fabius calmly. "'The troops are eager to be led out. The enemy insult us up to the very ditch. Italy is wasted,' went on Minucius. But, as if slightly cowed by the deep grey eyes, his tone seemed less aggressive. Fabius paused a moment before answering, and glanced around upon the lowering faces of legates and tribunes. Then he said, it is proper, Quirites, that I should say something to you of my plans. Our men are new, untried. Those that have seen service have seen defeat. The enemy are flushed with victory, full of confidence in themselves and their general, well seasoned in battle. Has the Republic a new army, if this be lost? But happily there is another side to the picture. We are in our own lands, our supplies are inexhaustible, we receive they must take we shall wear them out in skirmishes cut off their foragers men whom they cannot replace while we replace our losses daily and season ourselves in battle and grow to see that even carthaginians are not immortal there was a moment of silence then minucius spoke again and while we pursue this prudent policy what becomes of the spirit of our men who see that their general dares not face the enemy what becomes of the allies who see their fields wasted and cities burned, while Rome lies silent in her camps and offers no succour? Fabius's brow clouded, but he spoke even more mildly than before. There is much of truth in what you say, Marcus, but I am convinced that there is less danger in such risks than in tempting the fate of Flaminius, and there are many compensations together with certain victory in the end. And then the master of the horse lost control of his temper. His voice rose, and he cried out, You are general, and you command, but you shall hear me when I say that I had rather have perished bravely with a Flaminius than lived to conquer in such cowardly fashion with a Fabius. A murmur of half-uttered applause ran around the circle but Fabius did not seem to hear it. He eyed his lieutenant calmly for an instant, then he said, You speak truth, Marcus, when you say that I am general. And, turning his back upon Minucius, he passed through the line of officers as they fell aside to give him way, and proceeded slowly toward the Praetorian Gate. Here, among the soldiers, discontent with the dictator's policy was as strong as it had been in the Praetorium, while its expression was less governed by the amenities of rank. Roman discipline, however severe as to the acts of the legionary, put very few restrictions upon his speech, and the general, as he watched from the rampart the lines and movements of the enemy, heard many comments no less uncomplimentary than those of his master of the horse, and couched in language almost as coarse as that of the Numidians themselves. It seemed as if the foul words of the barbarians were passed on thus to the man held responsible 
for Romans being compelled to listen to such insults. Curiously enough, the centurions and under-officers appeared to be the only ones not hostile to Fabius's policy. These were silent, or even made some efforts to restrain the ribaldry of the men. As for the general himself, no one could have appeared less conscious of the storm his orders had provoked. His eyes were still fixed upon the distant array, and when, as the sun almost touched the meridian, Lucius Sergius approached with dispatches just arrived from Rome, he was compelled to speak twice before the other was aware of his presence. Then the dictator turned quickly, and pointing to the Carthaginians, exclaimed, "'See, they are withdrawing. Do you not note how thin the centre grows?' "'Ah, I shall teach them new lessons of war, new lessons. They will find in me no Flaminius to let my enemy choose the day and field of battle.' Leaving the ramparts, they walked back towards the Praetorium, Fabius breaking the seals and reading the letters as he walked. When they reached the tent, he stood still for a moment, and seemed to study the face of the young tribune who had followed, a half-pace behind, to receive any answer or order that might be forthcoming. "'What is your opinion of my refusing battle?' he asked suddenly, after a short silence. Sergius turned crimson, but he answered quickly. I have learned to trust in my general until such time as I know him to be unworthy of trust. Fabius smiled. Some of your colleagues appear to have already arrived at the latter conclusion, he said. Then, after a pause, he went on. After all, it is the judgment of the centurions that counts for most. Our legates and tribunes feel disgraced by our refusing a challenge. They may be sneered at for that, but who would blame them for the defeat that might follow its acceptance? The common soldier knows only his rage against the enemy, sees his comrades about him furious for battle, and comprehends nothing of its dangers. It is the centurions, our veterans, who realise the truth, the worth of their own men as measured against those of the enemy, nor are they puffed up with foolish pride of rank. You observe, sir, that the centurions are with me. Sergius bowed. "'Now mark well what will happen,' pursued Fabius. "'Hannibal will retreat to his camp. "'He will break camp and march off during the night. "'He must have forage, and he cannot scatter his forces while I am near. "'He will escape, and I shall let him, "'rather than risk the army in a night battle. "'But I shall hang close as the father-wolf to the stag's haunch, "'keeping nevertheless to the high ground, "'where his cavalry cannot trouble me. There will be need of good horsemen who can cling yet closer and advise me of his movements. Sergius's eyes flashed with eagerness, but he said nothing. You will attend to this service, continued Fabius, not seeming to regard the young officer's exhortation. Take the other five termi of your legion, not those of the escort. You must have light cavalry to cope with the Numidians, and your Greek horsemen are too heavily equipped. Assemble your men, watch the enemy, follow him when he marches tonight, cut off his stragglers, and send such words to me as you consider necessary. This shall be your reward for trusting greater things to your general. Turning, he entered the tent before the tribune could express his thanks. Deeply impressed by the favour and confidence of the dictator, Sergius hurried away to his quarters, and, sending for Marcus Decius, 
the decurion who had told the news of Trasimenus to the crowd of the forum. He directed him to see that the horses were fed and the men in readiness for the night march. When he resigned himself to sleep, and dreams of a certain pictured peristyle on the Palatine Hill, a peristyle wherein a maid sat spinning by a fountain and thinking, of what? Perhaps of him, for he was only dreaming, and maidens do not always think as men dream. End of section 4